Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Two BH. I was thinking about starting during the discussion of the Barbie thing, but I figured, you know, the bit was good, short, and lasted. Uh, you know, while it lasted, it was, it was right. good. You know what's super cool? I went to see Talk to Me yesterday, and I, I guess now that we're on mic, uh, putting Landmark Theaters on blast for evidently taking MoviePass out of their their like they're no longer partnered not not partnered with, but you know they don't accept MoviePass anymore, which huge bummer. Um, should place Icon back firmly at the top of the queue um, beneath the Trilon, obviously, but you know should place Icon. You simply love to to hear it and see it. Uh, and I did. I, I went and saw Talk to Me at Showplace Icon yesterday. Barbie Fever. Still, not that I didn't expect it to be like still going strong, but just half the lobby uh, of like people getting concessions. Everybody's Damn. like dressed up wearing pink. They got that standee with like the you go into the Barbie box and take yeah. photos. But I don't know. That just I don't know. I, I think- haven't seen that level of like in person theater enthusiasm. And so long, and that was yeah, super cool. I genuinely think it's going to be absolutely huge. Um, because similarly, like I uh, was driving to Charlie's at like eleven on Friday, and there was just a Barbie getting out at the Riverview, uh, and there were more people coming out of the Riverview than I have ever seen over there, uh, and they were all dressed in pink. Um, it's it's kind of wild. It's like event cinema again, um, all of yeah. a sudden, and uh, it's kind of surprising that like maybe people are repeat viewing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe with like other oh, yeah. friend groups and stuff, but yeah, definitely has legs. I just saw a thing that um, it's outpacing avatar two right now in terms of like, um, rightly so. Yeah. Box office. So we'll see. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know. I know everyone said it after Barbie 2023, but Barbie is going to be fucking <laughs> huge. <sighs> Thank you so much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw. Get a little bit more unintelligible each time. A literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw and people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon.org and at Trilon Cinema. Did I already say Try Love Podcast for us in Trilon? Anyway, Trilon Cinema is the Trilon. Try Love Podcast is us. Uh, I'm Jason Daphnis. I have always lived in sin. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. It's funny you say that because all this time I have lived like an animal. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Punishtake. And to me, a normal man is someone who turns his head to see a beautiful woman's bottom. I was hoping that one of us would get there. Uh, I'm glad we did. Um, so I'm not going to say the name of the film before the summary, as is my tradition anyway. I'm going to plant my flag here, and this is how I'm not going to conform. Uh, but I will point you to two links in the show notes where writers uh, associated with the Trial and Cinema or who have been there have written about this movie uh, by Eli Holm and Chris Ribaturas. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Really fascinating pieces. Go to parasphere.org to read those or just check the show notes. Uh, but as we always start our episodes with, we need to get uh, a friend of mine to introduce the segment uh, where we sort of give a quick summary of the movie, give you some legs to stand on as we're going through the discussion. Uh, And that is called the patented Aaron Grossman summary. And it starts like this. 
Yes, indeed, folks. Uh, the Conformist or Il Conformista, uh, I, I do have, I do have it back. Is a 1970 political drama thriller film written and directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. Set primarily in 1938 during the uh, rise of uh, Benito Mussolini, it follows Marcello Clerici, uh, played by Jean-Louis Trintignant. I don't have a French sound effect, but that was a French actor uh, who is tasked. I can with, uh, I can give you a French sound effect. Do you want to just hit please it just real give me quick? a clean one? No, just you go ahead and say his name. Uh, his name is Jean-Louis Trintignant. Zutalos. Oh, I was going to say Sacre Bleu. <laughs> Both of these will do. I, I can cut those. Diabolique. Uh, We've had many. They're just not here right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, who is tasked with assassinating his former college professor and vocal anti-fascist, Luca Quadri, played by Enzo Tarascio. Uh, much of the story is told through flashbacks that occurred during Marcello's ride to meet Quadri and assassinate him, uh, and traces Marcello's pursuit of what he calls normalcy, including maintaining distant relationships with his morphine-addicted mother and clinically insane fascist father, marriage to Julia, played by... <clears throat> Stefania Sandrelli Adultery with Quadri's wife Anna, played by Dominique Sanda Confession of his former crimes and the arrangement of the contact ki- excuse me, contract killing he's set to carry out The Conformist was highly influential on the world of Italian cinema, you could say broadly world cinema, and is now considered one of the greatest films of all time for its formal innovations its indictment of fascist sympathies and incisive commentary on the concept of conformity during wartime uh, I, that's where I'll sort of let the conversation go. Uh, I will start it by saying, boy, that guy really is quite a, con- quite a conformist. Who wants to pick it up from there? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you done said it all, Jason, I think. He really, um, like, I, I, I say, I say that jokingly, but for real, like it, it seems pretty straight, like there are layers here and fun things to pick apart, but it seems like a pretty straightforward message. <laughs> he do be conforming is the thing. Uh, Several in several different ways and in, at several different times, he even contradicts himself in order to conform. Ooh. Wow! Now that's now that's some complex filmmaking. Yeah, uh, I think this is one of my favorite movies. Um, I think it's one of the better or best movies I've ever seen. Um, I'm going to make a pretty hard stand for it uh, come December when we're doing the Golden Berries. Not to sort of like play my hand too early. Um, I. I think that this movie, like, I, I've seen it twice. Um, I saw it last time just on a laptop. And so I was really fortunate that I got to go see it at the Trilon. Shout outs to Kelly. She got me to a in-release screening of it. Hearing it for um, women. We're hearing yeah, it for women. Right. Thank you. Um, and uh, I think that, like, I, I had always been blown away by it, but particularly to see the restoration really brought home how much is happening in this movie, even on sort of formal and aesthetic levels. Um, every scene is just so com- like masterfully made. I can't believe how thoughtful it is in its construction. I can't believe how capably it's able to translate such a complex story um, using visual language as well as it does. Um, I I think that like the sound, the color, and the um, blocking, the cinematography, all of them, they're not really like anything I've ever seen in another movie, either before or kind of since, just because there is so much weight and sort of like animus and um, intrigue like put into every scene here where there are always like, 
a couple of different things being simultaneously communicated. And it works as like a literary work, which I'm sure the original book is really great. Um, and it works even better, I think, as a film. Um, and so I just think that like in terms of like pure like visual splendor, um, I think it's pretty untouchable or nearly untouchable in my mind. Um and I also think it's like, it's one of these rare movies that like, I think it was transformative for me. I mean, um, honestly, I, I had watched it after The Sopranos. Um, and I think that this is maybe the single movie that Sopranos owes the most to outside of like The Godfather. Um, but its depiction of what fascism really is and the impossibility of humans adapting that ideology into their practice of living and what the attempt at self erasure and repression does to the human soul uh and what makes it um desirable for certain people uh at certain times and the sort of self-loathing incumbent in that um really was sort of like it's something that i really like i i think it was something that that taught me a lot about like how fascists and how like evil people happen um and i think that it makes it a um, it's it's odd to call this a hopeful film in some ways, but it reminds me a lot of something like Boo Travail, um, in that the ultimate message is about how um, the reason why fascism requires so much um, authority and, and such oppression of the masses is because it's so deeply unnatural, right? Like it's something that can't actually be maintained and can't actually be um, internalized. And so the the work of fascists or nazis or any sort of like fascistic group is this sort of like continual self-denial i i think that that's such a profound uh message for this movie and i really love the way they explore it uh through um the protagonist so i mm -hmm. i think it's just a remarkable movie personally it is the first thing that grabbed me as i'm assuming most people this is my first time watching it uh and the restoration really is quite beautiful i managed to watch it at home and it's just Stunning, actually. Uh, I, I liked, like, obviously the um, staging and shooting and angles and everything are, like, formally pretty inventive. It feels very modern in that respect, even, I'm assuming, before the, you know, 4K update that makes everything just a little bit clearer. Uh, it still does have an incredible amount of, like, motion and sort of experimentation to it. I think that sort of wanes by the end to a more happy smoking Sunday, everybody. I'm sorry, that's a reference to what Cody's doing currently. Um, I think that sort of wanes as the movie goes on and it starts to like norm quote unquote normalize like its visual, uh, you know, sensibilities, but especially at the very beginning and toward the middle, um, I really like how it marries what you were calling that, like just surprising sort of enrapturing, uh, visual work into character work. It like specifically Marcelo as our main character, Marcelo Clerici. I'm not going to play the sound. Um, the specifically I'm thinking of like mo most scenes where he is um, at the beginning, he's, you know, sort of this shady character. He's popping between uh, conversations about his dedication to fascism and actually receiving like orders to go carry out this killing. Um, there are whole scenes like uh, transitory, almost liminal scenes of him walking through hallways to get to big, you know, it's obviously that classic fascist like uh, aesthetic, big open clean spaces and him just crossing and crawling across them shout out to the trial a former episode of trial love um where this movie reminded me a lot of that uh but it 
is like often will cut in on, especially during the beginning, cut in on a shot of just something leaving the frame. Often it's, um, I don't know if it's like using this to a particular end, but it made me feel a certain way uh, where Marcelo is like climbing up a set of stairs and we do not get an establishing shot of the stairs. We don't see him he, of the stairs. We don't see him approaching them. We just see him like mounting the last couple of them and maybe his shadow sort of like cast at the bottom or uh, there's a scene, I forget the character itself because it doesn't return, but sort of the honcho guy who's in that uh, actual building that he's going to see um like instead of an establishing shot of that office we just get like a woman's leg sort of like draped and swinging off of the office uh, desk and then we sort of back out and we meet the character and then we sort of back out and we see the room and then we see marcello um that just continues through that through i think it, like it hits a peak i think for me at uh, the scene where he's talking about plato's allegory of the cave and sort of his thesis around that it makes like a total mockery of the character through building this like very self vaunting self-referential oh i understand this thing this was would have been my thesis had you given me more time had you not left the university sort of thing and then it just wipes it away with a blast of light and the curtains open and stuff i think that's it's a little on the nose but it's very very effective uh, and it just carries that like sort of almost playfulness and almost like fourth wall breakingness but it's not a weirdly quite. funny movie in it some ways strange. right like, yeah like those those times where i mean i i let out a chuckle when uh and again we'll get to the scene probably but when quadri opens up the um the curtains and it just like bathes the whole room in light and the shadow that uh uh that Marcello was referencing is like his whole point about Plato's allegory of the cave and why he was choosing certain, you know, choosing the shadows, so to speak, uh, and why this was like a revolutionary idea for the concept. Um, that I think is like, th that was very funny in the moment. It's like, oh, we're, we're totally asking this guy visually and through what the professor is telling us about like the misguided nature of his ideas. Um, but we couldn't let that just be, be dialogue. We couldn't just write that. We had to like really get his ass through the fun, like most fun they could have had with the visuals. Um, I don't know. It, I, I'm just sort of expounding about what I, what you actually are shown in this movie because it is very impactful. Um, there are a lot of Dutch angles that appear that are just out of nowhere. Uh, there's just like an crazy, a crazy sense of formal inventiveness that I did not expect of a movie from 1970, let alone a political thriller from 1970 in Italy. We've covered movies a little bit like this before that were still fun to watch, but didn't feel like this almost fun house carnival vibe. Did any of that hit you, Cody? It did, uh, figuratively. Um, and literally, no, it didn't. Just figuratively, I wish. But um, no, I mean, I've, I've seen this movie one other time, uh, and what did hit me more this time in uh, figuratively again, in a way that I didn't really experience the first time around. I, I think part of I, I was sort of lukewarm on on following someone like uh, Mar Marcello Marcello. Um, there we go. I was, yeah, Italian.mp3. I'm going <laughs> to try my darndest. Uh, it's not going to be enough. But um, I, I, I got more out of following him this time around because uh, it might just happen to be because I'm sort of in this phase where I'm latching onto movies where you just say like, wow, they really directed the fuck out of this. You know what I mean? And like, they yeah, really, yeah. They, they certainly did direct the fuck out of this. Um, the, the formal elements that you we're expounding upon Jason. Um, that's a, a lot of what really uh, kind of brought me back into this. Uh, I got a lot more out of it this time around, which isn't to say that the like the narrative and the subtext uh, was uh, uninteresting to me because it certainly wasn't. It's just like there's 
you you come for the formal elements you stay for for everything else and all of the sort of like playful shadows the the jerky pans um the um yeah the unconventional angles uh, and how those play into uh marcelo it's it, and kind of what you were talking about jason specifically i'm glad you latched onto this as well but like the the actual physical movement because there there were what i i wouldn't necessarily call them like long takes but they were like a couple shots that you would typically maybe more often see like we're going to cut to this thing but it's like somebody walking into that next shot instead of them just like cutting into it yeah and i couldn't help but think about like this is literally the physical movement of a political movement and thinking about whether you are like if you are the like the titular conformist or like you're somewhere else along whatever spectrum is kind of the subject of you know the story like somebody has to like physically take upon these things and we're watching you we're watching this doofus uh, like undergo all of these things and like we're we're watching him walk into and i don't know there will be at least one segment at the end where i can talk more about some of those movements that really uh stood out to me visually but um that in particular like i i latched onto that um a lot more this time that's um you know and the it's the the physical you know the physicality of it and then witnessing like the ways in which those movements either do or don't weigh on individuals after the fact. So like seeing the consequences, seeing them sort of digest, you know, how does this weigh on, uh, on Marcelo? How does this weigh? How do these things that he does weigh on Julia, um, AKA uh, Italian Parker Posey? I don't know if that was anybody else. I, I saw a little bit of that. Yes. Um, so yeah, I don't, th- those are some of the things that I were kicking around, but yeah, honestly, like, Great film. Glad we got the chance to revisit it. Um, that's not to say I disliked it the first time, but I can say that I definitely got a lot more out of it this time around. And I'm, I'm excited to see uh, kind of where, where Harry takes us next with Harry being the the conformist rooter um, of, of the bunch here. The conformist among us. Um, also, yeah, yes. I really uh, I really like what you said about physical movements. I think that like there are. Um, sort of motifs prevalent in this movie that support that. For instance, Marcelo's best friend is a blind man um, and fascist. He never never sees him. He can never see him. Yeah, well, and Marcelo literally leads him around, right? Like, when they walk, they walk together arm in arm, um, which also underscores... It, it, both the the sort of like journeying toward a thing, right? Like he is being led. Uh, Marcelo has a bunch of mentors in this story and uh, betrays or lets them all down in different ways after leading them to ruin, right? After they lead him and then he begins to lead them. Um, so there's that. There's um, dancing is a big part of this movie, right? And the sort of like um, maybe the best scene in the movie, right, is, is the dance sequence where um, uh, Gulia, Gulia? Oh boy, I, I'm going to be Julia. I, Julia. I'll just call. I, I was Julia, saying Julia, yeah. Yeah. Right. and uh, and Anna um, are are dancing um, together uh, in Paris, and um, Marcelo is sort of like a man out in the crowd, uh, and we realize that that this is his worst nightmare in many ways uh, is to be surrounded by people dancing and confronted by the fact that he wants these things. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and in in particular, I. One of my favorite scenes is definitely the allegory of the cave, and I, I think that that moment when um, his professor uh, pulls the uh, blinds away and and shines a light on um, Marcelo's shadow is kind of a linchpin of the entire um, thing, and it gets at a really complex 
characterization of Marcelo that I really like, which is that um, just as the movie itself is sort of contemptuous of Marcelo and, and his ineffectual ability to conform, um, the... Uh, the movie, like all of the characters in the movie see through him, right? I, it's, it's fascinating, right? That like his, his allegory of the cave, his version of that is, you know, in the, in the typical allegory of the cave, one man in the cave realizes that what he's looking at are shadows of, of cave, um, sort of like shadow puppets. Uh, he leaves the cave or somebody comes in and brings him out of the cave and then they go back into the cave together to bring the other people out. Marcelo has been outside of the cave. He realizes what the world really is. He realizes what he really is. He realizes what humans really are. And um, he wants to go back in the cave. He wants to, like, not only does he want... Uh, people to stay in the cave. He doesn't even want to be the person who controls the cave. He wants to go yeah. back inside the cave. And he's, he's the Junji Ito. This is my hole. Yeah, guy. and it's because it's because he's um, he's terrified of of who he really is, right? And there is this, especially the second act, which is some of my favorite because it's so psychologically complex, in my opinion, um, where. Uh, Anna and his, uh, his professor, uh, Luca are, are, they're sort of trying to save his soul, right? Like there's a, there's a real battle for his soul happening where like Luca and Anna both know that he's a fascist. They both know that he's come to Paris to kill Luca as an anti-fascist, uh, organizer. And instead of revealing him to the police or getting away from him, they are sort of trying to indoctrinate him back to a more liberal sense of self. And they do this by seducing him, by seducing his wife, by sort of like really like poking holes in this uh, attempt that he has to disguise himself, to conform, to be the sort of proper man. They're really sort of like they're... um manipulating is is a little bit too pejorative but they're they're sort of like um trying to get him to awaken to and embrace his own queerness right his own um humanity uh and it it ends up backfiring for them but i found that so fascinating that that like this movie ends up becoming this war for marcelo's soul and like the tension uh isn't necessarily like is marcelo going to um, kill this professor it's like is he actually going to like commit to fascism or commit to what he believes fascism is and I I think that that culminates in a really stunning sequence and then I think the denouement the, the final act where he also betrays his blind friend is such a um, gutting sort of like reversal right to just prove to you that like it was never about fascism in the first place it was always about total self-denial and however he can best return to that cave so that he doesn't have to see himself in the sun um, and I, I find that to be the the crux of this uh, movie that total uh, denial or erasure of the self and the way that it manifests as metaphorically sexually and metaphorically politically and uh, metaphorically in terms of uh, gender and power and the power dynamics between he and his professor, all of that, it, it integrates so well with the message of the movie visually and thematically. Um, and I, I find that so compelling. I do too. I think like another layer to that scene, I think we, we can like extrapolate from that scene to pretty much the whole movie because it's very, I think uh, indicative of, of the tone and what it's trying to do with the character. Um, like, like you said, the movie itself through the characters around him have has some kind of contempt for the character. It reminds me a lot of um, it's been a while since I last saw The Master, but like I left me with some very similar vibes of like misguided. At least there's like a a single character pulling him along in The Master. In this, it's like 
you say he has chosen like the shadows because he's afraid of who he actually is. If he should like have to integrate with, if he should have to like admit to being some of his, some of these things or being the, some of his choices, et cetera. Um, he chooses that. And then somewhere in his mind, I think the movie is telling us that he has rationalized that not as a choice, but just as like going with what's normal to choose the shadows, so to speak, to like know the reality behind the cave wall and still choose the shadows for him. Isn't like I'm choosing this and this is my choice. And I plant my flag here. He has somehow in his mind, or he's either been shaped to believe this or has actively believed that he, that it's just what's normal, that he's just going with like the, the way, the way that he's supposed to live, not that it's a conviction or anything. I think it's like, it goes toward building that character's sense of like a self-chosen powerlessness. I think it's really point or worth pointing out that like, he doesn't actually carry out any acts of violence for the fascist state. He does not raise a finger to oppose the fascist state that is being built around him, but he's definitely writing the coattails. He's got the bourgeoisie life. He is like in good standing. The movie, uh, the climax of the movie when Quadri is, spoilers, Quadri is assassinated, uh, time skip. A f- yeah. Right. Time skip ahead a few years and he's living a pretty sweet life with his child and his beautiful wife and, and things are going well until of course Mussolini resigns. Um, but like, I think it's telling that like he, he doesn't have that conviction of action that a decision would need. I think it's really like keep, keeps poking at him like worm type, you know, just like scream, like, like a, a direct indictment of him and of the whole concept of choosing the shadow, choosing inaction, choosing, um, you know, like choosing what's currently happening and what seems to be the winner of the thing. He's not taking that as because like he has a strong belief in fascist ideology. Uh, it happens to benefit him. Um, and it's what's currently happening around him. And it'd probably be harder to stand up to it than it is to go with it. But he doesn't have any like pure fascist, like fire inside of him that compels him to follow Mussolini. Like he is just in search of normalcy. He's in search of an idea, this thing, this idea that he could be uncomplicated by his choices, that he could be, that the world could remain uh, as simple and as straightforward as possible, that he could have his, you know, trysts throughout his life, that he could have experienced this. We haven't gotten to the, uh, uh, scene of the, where the um, the chauffeur sexually approaches him as a child. Uh, he hasn't like he doesn't ha- really have to deal with that. He doesn't have to deal with the with the potential fact that he has killed that man in a fit of gun violence. Like he doesn't need to be defined by any of those things. He can simply be like be in the moment as normalized. You know, I think or his hatred of his father or his uh, Oedipal relationship with his mother. Right. All of those other um, like vignettes that we see, all the other flashbacks that we see throughout the movie leading up to his. Uh, leading up to the actual like act of of the movie, uh, all those things I think go toward the same like are just different like sides of the same um, you know whatever diamond things that have many many sides and are seen differently depending on how you like building out that character and all coming back to the same core root of like he avoids responsibility for the choices he does not see them as choices he sees them as going as finding something normal as finding like a base as normalizing like you said harry the sort of way that um that fascism does get normalized and gets put into daily contemporary life uh for people whom it benefits um I, I, again, I don't know if this is striking any thoughts, but like, I think that that single scene, the scene with the Plato, Plato's allegory of the cave is like really, really important, obviously, just because not just because it's fun to watch, but because it has like all the building blocks of what they're going to do with the character throughout the movie and sort of like making you think about what you've seen him do already in a different light. It's about halfway through. I guess it just adds up mathematically too. For sure. Uh, as a former humble stats major, I can confirm that the the math uh, gets us to that point um, pretty adequately. Yeah, I mean, how that all plays in, and especially the kind of the framing that we've landed upon where this is a, a fight for Marcelo's soul. Um, I, I really, I really like that. And I think the other, 
sort of, you know, as far as balancing the scales and thinking about how the um, the movie physically maps uh, these sorts of things out and frames certain like people and the sort of sides, you know, the lines that are that are drawn in the sand. Um, Manjin Yellow uh, was a, a character who, um, like, I, I was also particularly struck by this this time around. You know, if if um, you know Luca and and Anna are kind of uh, on on one side, there's like a very different energy coming from like the side of the fascists where like Manginello and Marcelo are they're together carrying out this act whereas Manginello we we don't get any like he and Marcelo have like not like heightened escalated conversations but like they they talk you know as like pseudo friend slash business partners um otherwise he just provides like very vague unassuming like good vibey, like a good vibey kind of support system. There's, there's some scenes where he almost comes across like physically as like a bumbling oafish sidekick, um, which is he, like uh, John, a John Favreau. He reminded me so much right. of like uh, Zenigata from Lupin the Third. It's just like <laughs> constantly sort of hounding oh, yeah. Marcelo and just being like, hey, remember, you have to do this thing for me. Uh, right. I, unfortunately, like a pretty comedic role, even though Manginiello turns out to be like an absolutely monstrous person. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. And that, that is, the the sort of big one of the moments that i was particularly gobsmacked by and that i completely forgot from the first one is like his his final words i I think it's like a a slow creep zoom up to his face where it's like right after marcello is just he he stays put in the car he has no emotion as he watches um and a runaway and he's just like he has this like really hateful speech about you know cowards homosexuals, Jewish people, they're all the same. You know, fuck them all. So, I don't know. I'm not quoting him exactly, but it's just like, oh yeah, this is like a, a cruel reminder of like the, the roles that people play when they're I don't, like, cause I don't, every, you go back and think like, oh, like everything Manginello does is like very um, like tested and, and conscious. There's a, a reason behind all of it. There is a reason that um, we, and you know, people, uh, People, people, you know, certain conformists, you know, the faces that they present to the world and the people that they are trying to, you know, the face that he puts on for Marcelo is very like, that's, again, it's a, a very like conscious thing. And us seeing that, you know, I guess going back to like the allegory of the cave, I don't know if it's us necessarily seeing like a, a reflection necessarily, but him refracted through a certain like, you know, ideology is like kind of what we see up until the end when he I don't know, steps out of the cave. The metaphor sort of lost on me at this point, but maybe you can kind of get what I'm saying. So I don't know that kind of like a, a, a low key, important game piece to this whole conformist game brought to you by Mattel. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, a fascist. Don't uh, read into that statement too company. aggressively. Um, so uh, I really like the way both of you are characterizing Marcelo, um, particularly Jason, the way that you talk about the sort of intersectionality of his self-denial and how that's what makes fascism appealing to him, because ultimately, like that, that's that is the mechanism, right? Is that Marcelo hates himself. He hates that he has the desires that he has in terms of queer desires, in terms of uh, quote unquote base desires, desires for the flesh. Um desires for violence, desires for incest, uh, desires for uh, murdering his father. Um, He thinks that by uh, 
mastering those within himself by by creating this facsimile of uh, normalcy, he can defeat them within himself. He can actually transform himself. There's a lot of talk in this about the Italian, uh, the new Italian, and he wants to become the new Italian um, man. And like through example, right? Like, and in doing so, he projects all of this hatred outward onto other people. I think that like the the really fascinating uh, mechanism beyond all of this, though, is that in my mind, at least in in this viewing, my reading of this movie, Marcelo knows that he's doing that. He knows that he's not normal. Uh, he says as much to himself when you look in the mirror, he feels different. He also knows that nobody is actually a fascist. He knows that nobody is actually the image that he wants to be. Um, it's it's a shadow on the cave wall, right? Like when you go out into the sun, it looks different than that. Um, I think that like one of my favorite parts, uh, and there are a lot of really great scenes, but like one of the most disturbing parts of the movie is when he is, Julia is explaining uh, her like, years long sexual abuse by a friend of the family slash quote unquote uncle. And Marcelo is intermittently bemused and turned on by this story. It's like the only time he really shows any sexual interest in her. Um, and that bemusement speaks to me uh, along with his sort of contempt for the church or again, sort of like this disaffected bemusement uh, condescension toward the church that he knows that, uh, that people, uh, he knows what what repression really does to people. It, he knows how it really like creates uh, the the perversions that that he sees as so disgusting. He knows that like that is a natural part of of humanity, and that actually like d- the attempts like he is doing to destroy them are what is creating them. And he doesn't care, right? Like there, there's this idea that he knows that his his quest is a perversion of the self. He just wants it to not he just wants to transform himself, right? Like there is this there is this sense in which he's not trying to make himself or he's not trying to like defeat uh or like portray himself honestly. He he doesn't ever think he'll be normal. He just wants to disguise who he really is. And hmm. that sort of self-hatred, that like total rejection of the self is like I think that that is the engine that makes this feel so true to life to me. Just this idea that like he is constantly in this state of trying to erase every aspect of himself. And in the process, it's all he knows. It's all he sees of himself, right? It's like the, the repression mechanism makes it so total. Um, Hmm. There's a, there's a really great passage from a a book um, that I borrowed from Kelly. Again, shout outs to Kelly. Um, It's Sam Deegan's uh, The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema. She wrote just a little bit about um, The Conformist and uh, particularly about um, The Conformist's take on uh, queer sexuality, which I think is, is really, really pertinent. And I think that what she writes here kind of like really drives home what I'm talking about, which is, um, it's tempting to view The Conformist as a film about the evils of sexual repression, but this interpretation is too simple. Marcus, that's another person she's quoting, um, writes, far from insisting that underneath every fascist lurks a repressed homosexual, Bertolucci presents Marcello's idiosyncratic sen- sexuality as one example of his general need to deny personal differences, which would lead an insecure, threatened individual to identify with an all-powerful state. Both political and sexual, The Conformist is a deeply psychological reading of fascism that makes 
a number of important parallels to the contemporary understanding of fascism as a death cult. Marcello's attempts to conform can be understood through Freud's writings on the death drive. On metapsychology, Freud writes, the hypothesis of a death instinct, the task of which is to lead organic life back to the inanimate state. Marcello's actions to join the secret police as a potential if failed assassins are not the attempts of a man to embrace embrace normal middle class life, but the complete erasure of self. Right. So that's unquote. But I think that that complete erasure of self is what he's really doing here. Right. It's not about fascism. It's not even about transformation. It's just about the total. uh, he, He just. Need, he has this psychological need to destroy himself, right? To return to an inanimate state. He doesn't want to feel human. He doesn't want to have the desires that are incumbent upon, like, that come with being human. And I think that all of the different manifestations of those desires, they get twisted through that very repression, but they are still, um, like, they are still manifestations of that nature, right? Which is why I think the scenes, like the scene with he and the um, chauffeur who tries to molest him as a, as a child are so fascinating, right? Because he has this very complicated relationship with the chauffeur where it's like he sort of reaches out to the chauffeur himself and sort of like embraces him uh, at first before he sort of violently rejects it. And the chauffeur has been somebody that has been sort of like lurking in his mind all this time, both sort of an object of hatred for him as a fascist, as the sort of man he wants to destroy as a fascist, and also as this sort of refutation of the normalcy that that he strives for, right? This idea that like I was attracted to this person or like I identified with this man, I can't get him out of my head. And I think that trying to remove that part of himself from his head is is what drives Marcelo here, right? And what makes fascism appealing to him is just this total hatred of the self that he then projects and makes a hatred of everyone and everything. Is is there any kind of intersection there with a certain nihilism of the character like would you describe the character as a nihilist yeah i mean i i I think so i mean i i think that like he's he's like a worm right it's like it it, it's almost fascism is almost too good for him right because it's like say what you will about the tenets of national socialism but at least it's an ethos (laughs) like in big lebowski it's like he (sighs) he will use anything to destroy himself like he will he will use anything to attempt to erase himself because he wants so desperately to be the quote-unquote normal man and that desperation is so strong that even though i think on some level intellectually or emotionally he understands that that can never be for anyone not just for him but for anyone the fact that that can never be only makes him want it worse. And it only makes him want to destroy everyone and everything worse because they will never measure up to what he thinks is worthy of existence. Right. So he is a nihilist in the sense that I think he very actively wants to destroy life itself. Right. I think he he wants to like take this thing that is messy and complicated and scary, and he wants to make it into something that is dead, that is Mm -hmm. normalized. Right. Yeah. It, I guess that explains a little bit of why, like, I, obviously the movie isn't begging sympathy or empathy with Marcelo, um, but then I wonder, just by pure dichotomy of thought here alone, is it trying to beg, like, some sort of reprehension of the kid? Like, obviously you don't like him very much. You don't dislike him, though, I, I get the feeling, because of his alignment to fascist sympathies, because of his, like disdain for the people around him because of X, Y, or Z, because he's too cowardly. It's because he wants... No, it's because he doesn't want like 
he wants that nothing. He wants that nothingness. Like he wants to destroy, like you said, everything that signifies the self. Um, and you sort of want to see him defined by something. I think he becomes a little bit enigmatic in that way, a little bit harder to pin down um, when like his whole motivation underneath the academia and militant fascism is just like a, a slurry of, of nothing of uh, is the, is the desire for nothing. Um, Cody did that. Is that something that you were, that you picked up on in the second time around? Did that, does that ring any kind of bells? I mean, this is, feels like an idea that I'm just barely scratching at because Harry's brought it up, but I want to know if it's ringing any bells for you. No, it's, um, I mean, I'm kind of making thoughtful, uh, you can't see this, um, dear listener, but I'm making like thoughtful eyes, like glances sort of at, at mm-hmm. my house plan as I, as I consider this more, because I think it is, it's a good point and it makes me think about any, any time that I've heard, like particularly in a, in like a movie or a TV show, some kind of work where somebody says like, I'm just trying to build a normal life because that is how Marcelo frames it and yeah, like yeah. like normal is i mean it, it can be like a, a code word for a lot of things but just when when somebody again like speaking purely for like cinematic terms not necessarily calling any uh, calling out any real life person that has ever said i just want a normal life um unless i am in which case i am but uh <laughs> right now we'll just say i'm not but just like if if you're like to pursue something normal which is also like a very subjective idea like to pursue that means like in it but like by its nature that you're trying to like erase something or like erase your prior self erase something that like was previously to you like your relative normal um and like innately that become like that that's a destructive idea um like potentially a violent idea um right violent especially that's a really good point yeah so that's i don't know it's a seed of a a really a really good idea and and certainly begs like a a third viewing at some point in in the future on top of all the other reasons to like revisit something like this but i think that's like to to see all of those or to consider all of those um kind of like again violent destructive ideas swirling in the eyes of marcelo who is i mean he we call we're calling him a worm i think somebody calls him a worm uh canonically yes yep exactly um uh, Jean Louis uh, Trintignant. I'm quite positive I pictured that. Diabolique. Diabolique. Um, Sacre bleu. Uh, plays it super well. Where it's like he's he's despicable, but there's also something like very blank, slaty uh, about that. And just to consider that under the surface, there, yeah, like there is what I consider to be uh, like a pers- uh, like a pursuit to normalcy. Whether he realizes his ideas are like violent and destructive or not, that is, um, I don't know. It's 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 saucy. Right, it it's, it is saucy. It's 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 a uh, it's a nice mirepoix going on there. Yeah, I, spaghetti saucy. One of the yeah. Uh, oh, I was oh, hoping you would play the. He, he didn't yeah, do the. Thing. He didn't do the hand signal. I was saying, yeah, mm, mamma mia. Um, it makes me think like there's a passage on Wikipedia, really short, that um, I it's from a book, so I I, I unfortunately don't know how to get books anymore. No way to get books. People won't talk about this, but there's no actual way to get books anymore in 2023. Um. It says a film critic and author, Robin Buss, states that the cinematography of this movie, which we've discussed a little bit at length here, the interesting shots, the f- fun editing work, um, suggests that Clerici's inability to perform with quote-unquote normal reality indicates that the reality of the time is abnormal. Like the f- way that we even see the world that this story is sort of being pulled from is like we're subjectively looking at the world and seeing like this is an abnormal way and he's acting as normally as he can to align with it with this very strange 
abnormal world. I wonder if that's too simplistic a take or if that was something, I'm sorry, Harry, you put your hand up before I brought up this point. Is, did Was there any, does that ring at all to you? Like, does that yeah, make well, sense? Yeah, well, there's a really great scene conversation with, uh, it's the one that I quoted uh, to be funny at the top of the um, podcast, but with his, his blind best friend talks about how, um, you know, a normal man goes where, to places where there are people like him. He dislikes people who aren't like him. He likes crowded places. That's why I like a normal man is like a true comrade, a true fascist. Right. And like, I think that like the, the blind man is, is wrong. Right. About that. I think that like the idea is that I, at least my viewing of this movie is that um, nobody is capable of that. Um, it's just that they are asked to want that. They are asked for this idea of normalcy. And it creates this very, I mean, like Cody said, I think violence is the operative word here, right? I think this is a movie about how the violence of fascism becomes possible. And I think that it, it's about looking inward. And it's about, there, there are these people who so violently reject their own nature, their own humanity, uh, because of what they see it as, that they are able to project that hatred outward and they make everything that's sort of beautiful in the world into something hateful, something that they can hate. Um, it's, it's like a total reversal of the nature of things, right? It's, it's this, like they are taking difference and, uh, diversity and, um, messiness and, and sexuality and queerness and the, the dissolution of barriers and all of these things that are that are beautiful and that are natural and human uh, and they make them into something they're disgusted by because they can use they're using those things to reflect what they're disgusted about in themselves right and so I think that like as an operating mechanism for violence, that's what that's what's happening here is that like this this person is taking what they hate about themselves and they are projecting it outward onto the world. And I think that that's kind of what that's referring to. That's the abnormality that's happening here is this idea that like in, instead of like looking outward and seeing what's beautiful in the world and understanding that it is also you, it, that the mechanism is reversed, right? Where like he is taking the worst parts of himself, the parts of himself that he can't stand and projecting them outward willfully so that he becomes capable of the hatred that he thinks is normal, right? That's what it means for like a normal person to be a fascist is it's like, oh, like I need to create the circumstances where I can hate things that are different from me. Um, and I think that that's like the great tragedy here. And like, it's weird because Marcelo is so con contemptible, but I think there is like a tragic reading of his character, right? Is that like, he is basically this person who like, instead of embracing the sort of like complicated beauty of who he could be, uh, is he instead chooses to use it to make himself as disgusting and ugly and, and inhuman as possible, right? And I think that, like, that's an allegory sort of for fascism itself and also just, like, human violence, right? Like, it all stems from this rejection of um, what's what's normal, what's natural, this, this inability to cope with your own desires and needs. Damn. This movie got it. I was prepared to simplify it as man. My man likes to conform, but it's not not that. Um, that is about all that I had in my tank before we get to our third, what's penultimate, but one before penultimate, pen penultimate, pen PP ultimate, PP ultimate. Thank you. It's a PP ultimate segment, uh, where we just clear out our thoughts. Was there anything else we wanted to tap here before we get there? 
Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the second act. Um, I think that like the, the really great tragedy there with Anna and Luca is that I think they misunderstand the true depths of Marcelo's self-denial, right? Because I think that in Paris, they're kind of trying to show him that there's another way that people can be, right? It's like, hey, like, you can have these fluid bisexual relationships. Like, you can love people. You can go dancing. Like, look, they even, I mean, Anna's sort of, like, very complex seduction of his wife, Julia, is evidence of that, right? He's, she's trying to be like, look, like, this is your this is your petty bourgeois wife that you think is going to make you normal. Like, this is the woman that's supposed to be perfectly normal. Look, I can make her into a lush lesbian like bisexual party girl in Paris because that's what people actually are. And like, that's okay. And like, look, there is another way you can do this. Like you don't have to be like this. Their mistake is that Marcelo knows that, right? That's the problem is that he knows that this is what he actually wants. He knows that he's outside the cave. He knows that like he, he loves his professor. He loves Anna. He loves Julia on some level, right? He loves his blind best friend. He was attracted to the man who molested him when he was a, a young boy. All of these things, he just, he can't stand that. He can't stand that he has these feelings. And so, I like, the, the great irony of the second act is that by showing him who he really is, that's the worst move that they could make, right? Because the problem is he already knows who he is. That's what he hates, and so, like, like trying to, to prove to him that he's not really a fascist is the exact wrong way to go about it. And they, they find that out only too late because all that's going to make Marcelo do is double down, right? Although, and he can't even really do that, right? Like, the, the great irony of, of the, one of the last sequences is he doesn't even kill Anna or Luca himself, right? He can't do it. He can't even get out of the car. Man, and so, like, the, he is never going to be the fascist. He is never going to be anything yeah. because he can't, he can't commit to... Or he he can only live in this state of perpetual self denial that negates any sort of ability to be uh, yeah. like a, a person an operating agent. That shot where Anna, while Luca has just been stabbed and thrown off a cliff by all the other uh, fascists, the shot where Anna looks in through the window and sees Marcello and starts weeping loudly, and then l the camera pans down and you just see the gun untouched on the seat next to him. The gun he that he was given he specifically. He can barely even look at her. It's right? it's so fucking it's it, dark and cynical, but it's also just wonderful. It's almost like comical. Yeah, like how it's, well I mean, they set sad, that up. And right? it, it is. And and I mean, like it. What's wild is is like it's so. Like, uh, it's so effective that, like, both times I saw this movie, I was angry at Marcelo that he didn't kill her himself, right? And, like, how effective is that? That, like, the movie got me to a place where, like, now I'm angry that he can't... But I know why, right? Like, I think the movie perfectly communicates why he couldn't even get out of the car right. and do the fascism himself. He just had to almost not watch it happen. Um, and then why he rejects his friend at the end, right? And why he he tries to conform again and again. And like that sort of, um, I, I made a Sopranos reference earlier, but like it's very, the ending of this movie reminds me a lot of the ending of Sopranos, right? Where it's just like, hey, like the worst thing that can happen to Marcelo is exactly what's happening to Marcelo. He's trapped in a hell of his own making and always will be, right? He could live forever and see the the all of the epics turning of human creation and he will only ever deny himself. Yeah. And like that's all that's ever going to happen to him. And so he will always be this sort of like worm on the outside looking in desperate to try to to try to normalize himself. And it's all because he can't 
deal with the fact that he's a human being <laughs> that he is simply yeah. like I, I like i like how you phrased that like the fact that anna and luca in paris try to show him another way of being and he actively rejects that too like he it's it's because he does not want to define himself and he does it, not it's want so to sad be. right like they're yeah. so they're so like sweetly naive right because like they're they're literally just trying to be like hey you can yeah. be human. It's okay to be human. And unfortunately, yeah. it's like he knows. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's it's not like, oh, I, I was never exposed to love. It's just that like he considers himself so disgusting and so unworthy of love that he needs to violently reject it mm -hmm. uh, in order There's... to return to the state of unbeing. Exactly. There's even that scene uh, where they're at dinner and Julia is sort of like off her nut already and everybody else is kind of having a tense dinner. And uh, I think it's Anna who raises objections to it. She starts to poke at the fascism thing. And Luca is like, listen, I'm an anti-fascist and Marcelo is a fascist and that doesn't mean we can't have dinner together. And it's like, well, man, you're giving, a, you're seeding a lot of ground in that, but you see what he's trying to do for him. You see what he's trying, like that he's trying to show him at least a middle ground, if not, you know, like show him that right. there's and, other and ways I mean, of being that's and he's the just tragedy, not going to have right? it. Exactly. Is that because Luca knows who Marcelo is better than Marcelo does, right? Like he remembers, yeah. he like Marcelo was once a, like a bright, uh, serious student who loved his professor and loved to learn philosophy right and like there was a narrative there it's like marcelo loves his mom he uh you know he's ashamed of his wealth and status and and his father's position as a torturer mm -hmm. all of he could have been somebody he could have been a contender right and <laughs> instead he rejects all of that because of how it makes him feel about himself because because he he can't he wants to be normal so badly that he would rather destroy everything than have to confront the fact that he's not. Yeah. Normal. Wow. Damn. He wants to, maybe he does want to affect change. He just wants to make everything as nihilistic and selfless as him and bring everything else down to his level. Make everybody worms. When everybody's a worm, no one will be. It's from the Incredibles. Uh, okay. I'll consider that our transition point to junk drawer. We're coming up a little bit on time. Um, so I'm going to open up the junk. Oh, yes, I did not. I did not delete it to make room for the funicula funicula sound effect. What you're hearing there is a bunch of shit in both the drawers of Blake Hester, former guest er, and uh, current host Cody Narvison. Uh, as we open up the junk drawer for our final little thoughts uh, that have to do with the movie, but maybe aren't directly related to a bigger point. Mine is very simple. Uh, shout out to the incredibly fake sounding cats and dogs that are barking at Marcelo as he's walking by to his mom's house. I don't know if you were listening closely. I heard that pretty loud and it's literally just like a bunch of Italian people going rah, rah, meow. It's the most goofy ass sound effects in the world. Hell and yeah. I, I fucking loved it. It made it feel surreal that the whole movie has like a dreamlike equality, but that just felt like, like somebody woke you up for a second to like splash water on your face. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, my point is also kind of unimportant in the grand scheme of things, but it's also maybe the most important thing there is. Uh, when he's, uh, when Marcelo is kind of pointing fingers at the end and in his, uh, in his frenzy, as Wikipedia says, um, when he's, you know, you're a homosexual, you're a fascist, um, and he's like spouting out it in the moment. It reminded me of a, a, a TikTok account that flooded its way into my FYP. It's this Italian lady who goes around calling out pickpockets. 
um and <laughs> like tour and and like, <laughs> yes yeah the, the uh and just chases them around with a camera like it's especially in like um tourist dense areas um every once in a while i seek her out just when i feel like justice uh is lacking in my life i'll just i'll, <laughs> I'll find pull up her account so that's yeah i don't know i don't know anything else about the account i, I don't know the name off the top of my head if you look up Italian pickpocket you'll get everything you need <laughs> I, and probably more I do love that you've timestamped this episode with a firm like June July 2023 by bringing up that TikTok account love yeah it. you're welcome young people um speaking of uh dreamlike uh Jason which you brought up did you guys notice that the actress who plays Anna appears three different times as three different people in this movie I I was um, confused a little bit cuz like he comes out of I think it's out of Anna's apartment building and he buys the tulip from the lady and is that her again as Anna yes. or is it somebody else No that's uh I think oh. that the the woman that he buys the um flower from is a different person right Right and but the person he also, buys the flower for like he goes back right. to her she's oh. anyway yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, it says here, Anna Quandry, uh, Minister's Lover, and um, The Prostitute. Um, I remember The Prostitute. I don't remember. Oh. I mean, her name is, uh, literally, she's listed as uh, Venti uh, Megillah Prostitute. That's when he goes to see the fascists. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's when he goes to see the fascists and, and embraces the prostitute there. Um, I, me and Kelly like had a long discussion about whether or not that was Anna. Because, like, I kind of thought for a while that, like, Anna was, um, uh, um, like, literally doing, like, anti-fascist spying. Hmm. And, and like, that prostitute character might have literally been her. But instead, I, I think that that actress is just sort of symbolic of, like, the the haunting desires that plague um, Marcelo. Marcelo yeah, right? yeah, it's, yeah. like, literally, like, every woman is every woman. And, like, uh, she is, like like this she becomes both like more and less than a person right she becomes like this symbol for him to sort of like objectify and reject yeah but also to be sort of like constantly because like that's the thing is that marcello is a character who is um fundamentally constantly failing right he's failing at his only thing because his only thing is to not be who he is like that's that's all he wants and so that i think that that explains a lot of the dreamlike nature of this movie is just this like idea that like he lives in hell, right? Because like like everything is a constant reminder of what he is incapable of being. And so yeah. like all he can do is try to destroy all of that just to make it shut up, just to make it stop confronting him with the fact that he's not who he needs to be. Right. He's got two Italian baddies after him the whole movie and he just cannot fucking stand it. <laughs> who among us, you know? Mamma uh, mia. <laughs> we have uh, two final segments. Uh, one of, well, I first can't go anywhere without closing up the old junk drawer. But one of our final segments here is uh, about images we want to see alongside the episode tweet when this goes out, hopefully Tuesday. I say hopefully as the producer, just to keep everybody a little bit on edge, keep them, keep them thinking. Uh, this segment is called Good Grief. Give Me a GIF. Uh, so I'll ask you for, if you've got them, timestamps, but if you don't, just where the shot appears in the movie um, and tell me what you think should go be the episode GIF. <gasps> Harry. I don't have timestamps. I apologize, Jason. I usually don't. Uh, to first, um, I think in the very first scene when he's laying in bed next to Julia and just like there is a red pulsating light playing on his face and the room, um, that's a really uh, unbelievable shot. Um, there's a there's a particular shot early on 
when he's driving with um, his sort of fascist handler um, that like you you see the sun behind the car and like there's this unbelievable like purple sky and it, it's like it looks like a like um, a painting by the guy who did the scream I think its name's like Edward Munich or something um, I'm not an art historian but like it looks unbelievable basically I like it I cannot believe that that's a shot of like the world of like real life um, and it's it's so like loud and stark um, uh, there's a there's an amazing sequence about midway point where he gets the gun that he's going to use to kill Luca and he points it at a fascist and then he points it somewhere else and then he points it at his own head and then he like smooths his hair uh pretty iconic because he's um, like oh where'd my hat go he only notices yeah, it then that's such right. a fucking good shot uh really great shot um let's see uh and then i think uh i mean there are so many great shots but i think the last one is when marcelo is standing in the middle of that throng of Parisian dancers who are all dancing around him. And he's like the eye of the storm. Um, really great bit of uh, visual filmmaking there. Agreed. Uh, Cody, did you watch this yeah. in a way that you could get timestamps? Uh, I did. I watched Wonderbar. it. Uh, oh God. Oh, Canopy. I think it was shout out to Canopy. Nice. Uh, so support your, your local public library i don't know um so as i alluded to much earlier uh these two i mean i don't know gifs moving images there's ideally you know there's movement in these regardless but particularly because this uh like the movement in this film the movement of people the movement of conformists and fascists uh really uh, it stood out to me. These are two instances where the movement uh, was particularly goofy um, because people move goofily in this movie uh, among everything else that they do um, goofily, like conforming. That's a goofy thing to do, right? Um, but 2212 thereabouts, it's, um, I want to say it's the scene where Marcelo, or it's, I, Marcelo is visiting his um, he's at his mother's place. Manginiel is there. He's like conversing with Manginiel. He's pointing out trees, the, um, like the valet driver slash like enabler uh, of his mother's, uh, like a, a Marcelo's mother's addiction. But it's just to see like Marcelo and Manginiel were talking. Manginiel goes over and starts slapping the shit out of trees. And then the camera like pulls back. And again, we don't cut. It's just like moving into what would otherwise be the next shot. It's like we kind of go up to, go up to like tree level and Marcelo with hand, like hands behind his back just starts to like, he scurries inside. It's so unnatural he has and this funny gay little walk. It's so good. dude. <laughs> I mean, like I, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's no other way to describe it. He walks like a gay dude. In this it, movie. Is a, it is a very <laughs> like fruity prance he makes from the car all the way back into the house. It's very, very funny. Yeah. Um, so, so that's why. And then the other one I had was, um, about 43, 38. Uh, this was that I, I, one of you guys, maybe both of you gestured at the scene where it's like, I can't remember the reason why he was in this building. It's before he met his, his, uh, his professor, but it, it like, he has to meet with like a head honcho and the camera's in a spot where it's like, it's posted up high. The action is taking place in like the lower right hand corner and Marcelo proceeds through like a couple doorways. Um, there's like a doorway to the room he's in and then there's another doorway and in between them there's a hallway. And this, the woman who's like the, like basically the receptionist for this building, she has this particular way of walking. She like walks through 
the like the small again the small doorway and i think like the lower right hand corner and it's like she's swimming her arms do these like very <laughs> like over the top movement i don't know i'm probably wrong to laugh at that, uh, what, but, what was the time um, stamp on that one? Up, oh yeah 43 38 thank you so much because i'm not gonna there. miss that i'm not gonna miss that again yeah it's like a very small moment from a character that we um will not i i we don't see again after that but she she left an impression on me and jason what are the jiffable gifable <gasps> moments that left an impression on you it's back in my court um so one of the first shots that like told me this movie was going to be something other than i expected it was when he's sort of uh, Marcella was sort of pacing back and forth in front of the singers who are playing on the radio. Uh, and then of course, Italo swipes in or sw- swaps in and he's reading from Braille. He's reading this, uh, this diatribe. Um, that is one of my shots because it's, it goes on just a little bit longer than you might expect. The camera is very fluid. It's not what I expected in a 1970 Polizioteschi or whatever this actually falls under in terms of genre. Did not expect it from this uh, movie. And it just does kind of take your breath away. And then it sort of plays with that space by turning the camera 90 degrees when he's being interviewed by somebody else for that job and twisting around. Anyway, uh, really, really good framing and shooting in that one. Um, and then the, uh, the I mentioned the receptionist's leg swinging under the desk is, I think, a really good shot. And you could probably, uh, note to the producers, could probably make a, an eternal or permanent, like a, a constant seamless gif out of that uh, because her leg does just three or four times does the same thing. Um, and then uh, there's a shot where I forget, I think it's Mangianello is pulling the car around maybe to pick up Marcelo. I forget exactly where this falls in the movie, but um, Marcelo is walking along the sidewalk and, and a car, like the camera starts at a Dutch tilt, like, I don't know, 25, 30 degrees to the left. And then as the car comes around the corner, it just scoops the other direction and gets this crazy Dutch angle twist thing going on. Uh, it's just of a car moving for Christ's sakes. They didn't need to to do that, but it just, it made such an impression on me. I think that could be a really fun one, probably not for the episode, but I definitely want to make it because it's just a hypnotizing image. Uh, those are my three, I guess for the record, five minutes, 30 is the one with the background singers. Nine fifteen is about when the leg swinging happens and about at 16 minutes is when the Dutch angles go crazy in this movie. Uh, so, oh. Only, only tangentially related, I did want to call out uh, your GIF in the um, Puff Puff Movie Pass tweet, Jason, was oh. extremely good. The yeah, slamming those really all together. Uh, Thank I you. Keep, I keep forgetting to mention it, but since we're on mic, who's good at talking to Zenny? Um, so check out that tweet. Check out Puff Puff Movie Pass. <laughs> you are on Twitter and want to see a cool GIF. There's a little bit of chaos, but yeah, thanks. Uh, I had this is sort of a junk drawer slash uh, give me a gif. You don't actually have to include. Oh, it what is this a crossover many. episode? Yeah, I know it's crazy. Um, I but I think like this moment perfectly captures like the dark humor of this movie. Like after, um, Marcelo calls out uh for trees to be killed. Um, and then the like the car comes around that he's escorting his mother into. Uh, his mom is like, "Where's trees? Where's trees?" And and Marcelo like cool as a cucumber is like, "Oh, I don't know." And like trees hat is sitting there like in the because it fell off his head when when he was being dragged away to be killed. And Marcelo just like completely casually like brushes it under the car. Like as he's escorting his mom into the car, he just sort of gives it a little kick under the car, and it, it's like. It's you, you, I laughed so hard and then I felt like such a fucking creep for laughing because like, it's so, it's so funny, but also like, so, so horrible. <laughs> and like, like on, I, it's I, love, trees. Yeah, so. I love that it's both of those at once. It is a lot of the movie actually it sometimes veers from that center of being equally haunting and equally weird and funny sometimes it veers from that but it never never completely yeah well i mean and it's so that's so appropriate right because it it is almost satirical it's like Mm -hmm. marcello is like the worst 
He's like literally the worst dude who ever lived, right? Because it's like it's a dude who who can't deal with being human to the point where he just wants to kill everyone and everything instead. He just well, wants like, everything to to stop existing. Yeah. It's it's like he warns Italo that he's still wearing his fascist pin because he can't tell on his way out and as they're being rounded up and taken away as the fascists are being taken away as uh as Mussolini is, is leaving power and then he sells him out anyway as a fascist it's like he cannot tip the scales he can't be anything he's this worm with one foot in every camp god god what a movie it's like the worst possible manifestation of adult Shinji Ikari at the end of this movie <laughs> see I'm not going to go off camera for that one the way Cody does but yeah but but uh is that a is that a neon I didn't know Gen- if that was a video game is that a neon genesis even it is Gen- yes thank okay. you uh I, one of these Jason, days that's one for the weaves out there one Shout for the outs. weaves hey Cody's Cody's in that oh. camp yeah I was gonna say I, I guess I didn't need to turn my camera off that's still on my to watch list for the year so I better get on that uh look forward to Harry Cody's review of um Nia or you see me Ava uh is that on Letterboxd I think they put that all yeah, that shit is. on Letterboxd yep. I wonder mm. if you would log it I, w- I would if I did watch it so keep an eye on uh Cody's Letterboxd for a review of Ava uh, eventually maybe in two or three years uh, they also but, all of the four rebuild movies are on Letterboxd oh, so boy. you could review you, all of those you cannot you shall not etc I, I just remember how goofy the parentheses are in those titles. It Spotify. rocks. It's it, so good. It does rock, but it's also very funny to make fun of. We have one actual final segment. Thank you so much, y'all, for your gifts. Look forward to those on Twitter, listener. Uh, but when, before we get there, before Tuesday comes, we need to get into our final segment of the show, which Harry always introduces with me. Wow. Uh, before Tuesday comes struck me as very poetic. I don't know why. That just sounded very nice. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is the segment we like to call... <gasps> Cody's Cody's Wow. Thank you, gentlemen. That introduction was certainly on the wrong side of history. Today, I'd like to shed uh, light on a a fun little toy I I stumbled across over the the last few days. Uh, So in trying to find similar actors between Asteroid City and Oppenheimer at a social gathering that I think everybody here was was at, uh, I found honestly kind of a, a white whale sort of a tool that I've wanted uh, for a long time. You imagine in my head, it'd be so great if this were available so that I could do this particular um, dorky thing. Uh, and it's through IMDb. It compares the cast and crew of two works and essentially spits out how many members the works have in common and obviously the list of, of who those people are. So all this is a precursor. It leads us to today's exercise, which is called The Common Formist. Um, because of the things that the people they have in common, I'll try to remember to get the link to to Jason so that folks at home can play along Thank through you. the the show notes. Yeah, I'm not going to send it quite yet because well, we'll get to the yeah. um, the uh, the the our classic disclaimer uh, in a little bit here. But I'm going to essentially list off pairings of movies. You gentlemen will give me your guess for how many members of cast and crew the two films have in common between them. You'll be scored based on how far off you are with your guess. So I'll progressively add up the differences um, between like your guess and the real answer. And then that'll be your score. So it's a lot like golf in that uh, the lower the score, the better. So you want as low of a score as possible. As for the order of y'all's guesses, um, I'd like to try out this. Uh, there's a lot of new toys uh, this week. Uh, I'd like to try out this fancy wheel spin app that I downloaded yesterday. Um, so let's do this. Wait, to, turn to, to be, let's set the stakes to choose between yeah. One person be, and the other. Yeah. So on, it would. This was like, I, and I adjusted the wheel. I thought Aaron was going to be on. So like spinning the wheel uh, between three three people and like the need to like gamify 
like <laughs> not as not as a great of stakes with just two people um but i had mentally committed to to debuting this so maybe we'll use it for future apps maybe not it's just a, a wheel spin app um i'll yeah, leave you how do you want it's just a, that's i don't even know if that does that does that make a sound Oh, there we go. So when it Very lands triumphant. on someone, it's just da da. But I've oh Jesus! But I've got uh, a lot of shit that will make noise if I leave my phone uh, not on mute. So I will leave that <laughs> Shout out on mute. Making us <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Uh, it, it's called it's called good decorum uh, or or something. Might get a kit. It's called a lot of things, uh, and this is called the common formus. So I'll do that to determine who goes first. Um, again, uh, randomize and ho- hopefully equalize the gamifying. I don't think I really need to say this, but as always, trivia mafia rules apply here. So use your noodles, not your Googles or your IMD bizzles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in. So our first pair, uh, we're going to stick with the conformist. Uh, it is the, the movie that we just spent a lot of time talking about, and we're going to pair that with previous episode revolver so how many uh, members of cast and crew do these two movies share between them i'm going to spin the old wheel, wheel here and uh the person who will be giving their guest first is jason Whew, so, i got it by a hair listener that was just a tiny bit into my half of the sphere just a couple mere pixels so yeah jason what is your guess for how many uh, members of cast and crew are shared between revolver and the conformist i think revolver was just a few years off from this so there's a chance it was also an italian production i'm gonna say uh 12 shared cast and crew members i don't remember any faces right. that were in that movie versus conformist but i feel like behind gotcha. the scenes there might have been some gaffers and costume people sure sure hey um fair same, logic same catering company probably mm, <laughs> that could be for like 45 people shared <laughs> i got i got jason locked in for 12 what can i put you down for harry this is maybe bold but i'm I, they're like 30 italian people uh i'm gonna go with like there can't be that many of them you know that's simply ridiculous uh i'm gonna go with 16 cast and crew crossovers which is maybe a lot but again there can't be that many italian people hey uh we'll find out in just a few seconds the number of shared cast and crew uh it's just one uh and that is franco franco uh bossi who is a, a sound cruiseman um i'm not gonna read off the scores each i I, actually that'll probably be good so i don't have to do a bunch of math at the end um so that puts us uh jason's at 11 uh and therefore in the lead harry's at 15 nipping at his heels just nipping so that uh that'll bring us to number two our second pair of films uh uh, sticking with asteroid city uh mentioned that a few few moments ago during the intro asteroid city we're going to pair that with 1996's and wes anderson's and previous episode of try loves's bottle rocket so how many shared members of cast and crew are there between asteroid city and bottle rocket i'm going to spin the wheel to see who gives the guest first and it is harry so harry what is your guess Man, I think it's going to be way fewer than I would think it would be. So I'm going to go with four, I think. All right. Harry is going with four, locking you in. And Jason, how about you? What do you think? I'm going to go with uh, like 10. Jason is going to go with like 10. Um, the So the shared members of cast and crew between Asteroid City and Bottle Rocket. We have director Wes Anderson, cinematographer Robert D. Human, 
that's it. Uh, just those two. Um, so that is where that is at. Auteur that brings my ass. Auteur my butt cheeks. Uh, so Harry uh, gets uh, just two added to his score. That puts him at 17 for the game so far. And that brings Jason uh, to attack on eight. That brings him to 19. Still very much anybody's game. I'm going to try not to get lost in the, the math, which is, uh, as you can tell, dear listener, basic arithmetic. If you get lost in the math, Cody, of. none of us have any hope. I'm probably going to crash my car. Uh, yeah. Um, well, hey, let's let's hope not. Um, but we will crash into number three here. Uh, so our next pairing of films, two colorful uh, modern classics. We have 2023's Barbie. And uh, I believe 1997's Batman and Robin. So Barbie and Batman and Robin. Many superheroes abound uh, in these two movies. Uh, and we've got Jason giving his guess first. So Jason, how many shared members of personnel between those two uh, colorful modern classics? Uh, can you clarify that the source of this is IMDb? And IMDb uh, tool, I, I mean? Uh, yes, IMDb. Okay. There have to be a huge number of people on both of these could go either way. Then um, I'm going to say that 26 people are shared depending on how deep IMDb goes. 26, depending on how deep IMDb goes um, too much for me to write out, but I got 26 noted. Um, so we'll, we'll leave it at that, but thank you. And uh, over to Harry, Harry, what's your, your guess? I'm going to go with two Cody. Harry is going to go with, two and so here's the thing we've got uh we've got one shared individual between those two movies uh which is great because it makes the math a lot easier uh not how i planned that but a uh, chris palermo shout outs uh, he's a, a stuntsman uh, a st- stuntman uh, a stuntman he's not a stunt he's man. not a, he's stunt- a stunt man yeah we, we both we, we both got there hey man uh uh excellent so Move in. Oh, yeah. So scores. Math. Uh, Harry is, uh, you got one added to his score. So that puts him at 18. Jason, uh, got uh, a, a robust 25 added. So that puts him up to 44. Um, I'm, I'm staying sane and correct in my math so far. Let's see if that continues as we head into our fourth. We've we got two more here. So our fourth pairing of films, uh, because Christopher Nolan is, is having a bit of a moment right now, uh, with his, he'll get release. there. He'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, someday. Uh, a lot of a lot of things to look forward to with that um, young chipper young man as we look at Inception and Tenet. So those are the two films that we're uh, comparing here. I'm going to spin the old wheel, and that brings us to Harry for the first guest. So how many members of personnel do these two films share between them? I'm going to go with seven, Cody. Harry is going to go with seven, marking it down, and over to Jason. How many do you think? Four. Jason thinks four. So um, the number of shared personnel between those two films, uh, it's 85. And no, I'm not going to list them, but I th- bet y'all can think of uh, at Son least of a, a few. So, mm, some bitch. Uh, so, so there's that, um, going to do the math here. So Harry had 18, he's got 78 added to (laughs) to his score. So that puts Harry up to 96. 
uh, and Jason said four. I guess what I could do is just add. Oh yeah, so so at eighty one added to his score that puts him up to one hundred twenty five. If anybody listening finds out I did this math wrong in the moment uh, in a very high stakes, high pressure scenario. No, I fucking didn't. Uh, as we head into the final pairing of films, we've got, uh, again, these last two, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. How many shared uh, cast crew members are there between these two? And maintaining a, a certain pattern, we got Jason here giving the guests first the, the trials of spinning a wheel with, with just two slices. Yeah, it's almost mm-hmm. like this is an exact 50-50 chance, and we've had an even number of questions. <laughs> uh, well, and we're at question five, so almost. I, yeah, but, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm a Greek, not, uh, not a mathematician. We have a we guess all? of... Uh, yeah, Greek, Germans, countrymen. We have <laughs> a guess of... 11 people shared between Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Noted. Got you down for your guest. It is etched in uh, on an abacus high up on a mountain somewhere. Uh, Harry, what is your guess? Man, and now I'm just imagining if Dougie Slocum had been around to uh, do the cinematography for uh, Dead Reckoning. What a world that would have been. R.I.P. I bet that motherfucker Shea Wiggum is, is in... Raiders somewhere. <laughs> I bet he's hiding out in one of those scenes. He's one of the skeletons that sort of yeah, attacks exactly. Marion. The- um, I'm going to go with uh, just one, I think, Cody. Just one. Harry is going to go with just one. It is, in fact, just one. It, it heartened my soul to see it. David Worley uh, is a, a camera operator. He was a camera operator for, not like the primary camera person obviously but like one of the camera operators for both raiders and mission impossible yo shout out he's uh fucking awesome (laughs) dude homeboy is is 80 years old this year that let's uh, fucking go imagine super cool imagine like being on a movie like dead reckoning and being a camera operator and being like this is so cool but then you lean over to the guy on your left and he's like I helped shoot Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you're like, this doesn't mean shit to you, huh? Yeah, that, that, dude, that dude's like, I filmed Tom Cruise's birth, motherfucker. <laughs> he thinks he's so cool jumping off that cliff. I don't know. I've seen better. <laughs> he wasn't so graceful falling out of his mother back then. Uh, uh, with that, um, final scores. So uh, Harry ended the game with a score of 96. Jason with a score of 135. Not sure what to expect from this game, but uh, valiant efforts from the two of you fellas. This has been the common formist, and now Harry will, uh, I guess, will have more of a, a pop-off platformist uh, type of scenario. So um, speak your truth. I'm just impressed with the puns, man. You're really giving it today. Uh, a real pun formist. Hmm. I will say it is always a joy to end our episodes with an episode of uh, Cody's Noties, but also I failed to consider how much effort must go into thinking of the, like it's another mindset to have right? the puns mindset, the games mindset and the punsman, two different things. And you put them really both on for us. Truly doing actual work uh, for this podcast, which is more than I've ever done. Um, and so we salute you, Cody and your noties. Thank you, you for the game funny. as always. Thank you. It's a pleasure just to be here. Um, <laughs> to be Cody. I got nothing. <laughs> it is a pleasure just to be noted. Uh, noted. You, you, you can find a link to the game that we just played. Well, the tool that Cody used to make up the game that we just played 
uh, in the show notes. Cody just linked it to me. Again, all propriety uh, has been followed. Rules and regulations, you can find them in the TNC at the bottom of the episode. I did not have access to that link before we started, uh, before I just started thanking for it. So thank you, Cody, for ending our episodes always on a wonderful, lighthearted note. Thank you, listener, for tuning into another episode of Try Love. Make sure to go to trylon.org or stop by the Trylon to see what they're playing. They just announced a whole new slate of movies. The ones I remember are Deep Cover and Witness. There's a whole shit ton more coming to the Trylon, though. Check them out. Those are two that I'm really excited to see. Hope we get to cover them on this show. You can stay tuned to our feed. Uh, this is Try Love, the podcast, uh, to see if we do cover them and maybe go back to the backlogs. There are like 250 episodes almost of this show for you to check out. And I encourage you to check out any that you've seen the movies for. Uh, or if it inspires you, go check out a movie so that you can check out the episode. It happened to our friend Kyle, who just went to see uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and then we immediately listened to our episode. Uh, what a mensch, that guy. Uh, I think I've been on maybe one episode he was on. Maybe. Maybe our Goofy movie episode? I don't even remember. Were you I, on a... I was not contagion? on Contagion. Oh, man. That was the one, then. That Man, I missed that's my wild. ships in the night. What a it? weird... Not to, like, deviate too much, but the fact that that's one of, like, our first quarantine episodes, uh, like, virtual recording episodes, and you also, you weren't there for it, that just... Yeah, blows my mind. I straight I up remember you being in that episode. I just like have a, it's like a Baron scene bear situation where I just like <laughs> fell through a wormhole. And Here that he was is. the the one difference in the multiverse was that you were on the con- contagion episode in a version of the world where COVID didn't happen. We still did contagion, but I was on that episode. Um, so I don't know follow you through your nearest wormhole to find that episode but you can find us on twitter our little humble podcast at try love podcast you can find me humble little co-host here uh jason daphnis on twitter at nintendoofus i've been cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh i've been harry mack and you can find me on twitter at punished take 10 years ago my father was in munich Often, after the theater, he told me that he'd go with friends to a beer stube. There was a nutty man they thought a fool. He spoke about politics. He was quite an attraction. They'd buy him beer and encourage him. He'd stand up on the table making furious speeches. It was Aaron Grossman. L'amor gioca sempre col cuore l'eterna partita.